Thank you. My name is Steve Cox, and I'm a very grateful alcoholic. I, there for a minute, I was looking around to see who Glenn was talking about. But, uh, I uh, brought my resident Al-Anon with me. She's a recovering Catholic. Uh, I was told not to tell any Al-Anon jokes, and I, I met Pauline here up here from Kentucky, and she wanted me to kind of ease away. She's the next speaker, so I thought, well, I better not tell any Al-Anon jokes. You know, I don't want uh, one of them mad at you is enough. Two Al-Anons mad at you. You haven't got a chance. I did, however, hear a really neat joke. It was about Bill and Hillary. Anything about them is funny. Uh, he was still president, and they decided to go to a Yankees game, and he didn't want to sit up where, where all the important people sat. He wanted down behind home plate, and so they got a bunch of Secret Service and FBI together, and they took him and Hillary down and parked him down in the front row where the game was. And was just getting ready to get, it was almost game time, and one of the Secret Service went over and, and tapped Bill on the shoulder and whispered something in his ear. And Bill turned a little bit red, and he just kind of shook his head. He said, no, I can't do that. A little bit later, the agent man came over again. He says, Mr. President, he says, uh, I've talked with the owners of the teams and the managers and the team players and most of the crowd, and they would really love for you to do this. And Bill says, well, okay, he says, they really want me to. So he reached over and he grabbed Hillary by the scruff of the neck and the butt of the pants and heaved her across that fence. She went rolling in behind home plate and, and the dust coming up and she got up and was cussing him. And the crowd just went crazy. They were laughing and clapping and everything. And Bill turned to that Secret Service man. He said, well, how would I do? He said, you did pretty good, Mr. President. He said, but they wanted you to throw out the first pitch. <laughs> I hope Hillary's not an Al-Anon, I'll tell you why. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny as, as we age, I like to blame a, a lot of my problems on my past alcoholic behavior of my drinking, you know, and I can't do that much anymore. The age is kind of stepping in where the alcoholism left off, you know. And uh, I told my granddaughter, I said, she said, how you doing, Grandpa? And I said, well, I said, I woke up sucking in air. I said, at least I didn't wake up dead. And she said, oh, you can't do that, Grandpa. <laughs> you just can't wake up dead. So I'm admiring this room and to cover it in that we got last night. Beautiful room, you know. We went in there and, and I went to sleep and everything was fine till about 2 in the morning and nature called. And I'm standing in the bathroom there in all my glory. And uh, as I'm using the bathroom, while this need comes across me, I have to kind of break wind a little bit. And I'm standing there and, and just as I'm doing that, I had an itch. And I'm scratching my itch, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, this is a really nice room, but these bathrooms stink. <laughs> they need to do something about this, you know. <laughs> That's real short-term memory. <laughs> uh, my wife and some of her friends told me they said women don't fart. I said, why? She says, no, they fluff. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't want to be down with any of these women that are fluffing. Yeah, it's just, just not a good place to be, you know. Sobriety has done me well. It's good to be here. You know, at my age, it's good to be anywhere today. Uh, I, I'm just loving AA. I, I have a, a paragraph that I read to start my lead off, and, and I read this paragraph, 
mainly for me to remind me where I came from, because I've been told in AA, if I ever forget where I came from, I'm bound to go back there. And I, and I really don't want to go back there. It says the alcoholic is like a tornado, roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken and sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. It says we feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. And I remember when I first came into AA, and I thought, boy, I put the plug in the jug, and everything's going to be fine. We all know what fine means, you know. Uh, I had stopped drinking, but I hadn't done anything with what was sitting on my shoulder up here. I still had a, a real bad way of thinking. I was born into an alcoholic family. I, I was a third of eight children. And, you know, I, I heard in AA how we're a lot that normally don't feel like we fit anywhere. And when I was a young kid uh, being raised up there in Fairmount in a, in a family of eight kids, I didn't even feel like I fit in a family unit. I felt like the outcast and the black sheep of the family. My parents both drank alcoholically. My dad was a, a mean drunk. When, when he got, uh, got drinking, he could knock you across the room in a heartbeat. And I thought I hated that man for the longest time. And I come to find out I didn't hate him. I hated his disease is what I hated. And uh, I never felt quite like I fit in that family unit. I had an older sister. She was the only girl of eight kids, and she was the meanest. Uh, it, was, it was back in the 60s where them women wore those spiked heels. And, and I got scars on my shins to prove how mean she was. You know, and she swears that I deserved every scar I got. I'm not sure about that. But uh, she was a straight-A student in high school, and, and she was a cheerleader and did a lot. It was pretty successful in her life. And I had an older brother that was born on my dad's birthday and given my dad's name. He was my dad's pet. And, and he got straight A's, and he got into karate, and he was a karate teacher, and he became pretty successful in life. Then along come me. I didn't like any of those things. Uh, I didn't like football, baseball, basketball. I was a nature lover and a music lover. And uh, uh, I just, I, I didn't feel like I quite fit there. I played trombone in the, in the high school band. And uh, just, uh, I went out for football one time and it hit me so hard it hurt. And I said, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like this at all. I didn't realize that was what that was all about, you know. I hadn't done anything to them. Yeah, I just went out for football. But uh, I remember uh, my dad's drinking. Uh, it, it got just progressive as mine did, I remember. And uh, he used to have a, a lot of people over. We're from a real small town. The reputation means a lot. So he kept it under wraps quite a bit. But he'd have people over, and uh, he would drink beer. And he'd buy these little pony cakes of beer and put that pony cake in the refrigerator and, and invite people over because he was such a nice guy. And uh, they'd, they'd tap that pony keg and, and drink that a little bit, and then he'd go on to whiskey. And whiskey was like firewater to him. I don't think there's any Indian in him, but it was like firewater. It was like, boy, you want to see somebody get mean, just give that man a little bit of whiskey. Whew. And I hated that stuff, but uh, he used to spike his coats with it. And I, I remember I got up one night. It wasn't like last night where I had to go to the bathroom. But... I had got up and got in the refrigerator and, and, and got a Coke and, and just tipped that thing up, not realizing he had that whiskey in there. Boy, I thought I was going to die. That stuff was going down. And they talk in AA about that first drink and what it felt like. You know, Well, I remember it burned going down there and, and how it felt. It 
kind of got warm. And when it hit my stomach, this warm glow come across my stomach. But by the time it got to my head, there was a brand new feeling. And I said, you know what? This, this is not real bad stuff. Uh, the, the, the thing that I had trouble dealing with dad was dad was always calling me. He'd call me stupid and tell me I'd never amount to anything. And he knocked me across the room when I did wrong and everything. And, and I'm not here to badmouth my dad. That's just the way it was when I was a kid. And I found out that if I drink that stuff, and when he hit me, it didn't hurt. When he called me down, when he said that I was stupid, it didn't hurt. See, I found the magic elixir. If I drink this stuff, it didn't hurt. I found out that by drinking liquor, it did one thing for me, and it did it very well for the next 30 years. It took me right out of reality. Right, And I stayed out of reality for 30 years drinking that stuff. I tolerated that man for as long as I could. Uh, there was a time, I remember, when I actually had thoughts about uh, killing him when he was sleeping. And, and I, I read papers and, and accounts of kids doing that even today. And I have to admit, that thought come across me, you know, there would be one problem in my life that would be gone. If I could just conjure up the nerve to do that, well, I couldn't do it. You know, I think somewhere deep down inside, him being my dad, I had to love him somehow. Uh, but there came one particular night where I was out riding around with some friends of mine, and I didn't know what marijuana was or any of that stuff back then. And uh, they gave me a ride home from a dance, and I was sitting in the car, and they were all smoking cigarettes, and, and it got in my eyes, and my eyes were all bloodshot, and I walked in the house, and, and here sits my dad in this drunken stupor. And looked at me, and he says, you've been smoking marijuana. Well, I, I didn't know what I said, no, Dad, I, I don't even know what it is. He says, yeah, you have. He says, come with me. We're, we're going to go on one of those infamous rides that we go on out in the country. And I know how they end up. And he reached over about five miles out in the country and reached over for me, and I was gone. I had escaped his grasp, and I was running through the cornfields, and it was raining, and the corn was cutting me, and I was falling down. And he was yelling at me to come back, that he wasn't going to hurt me, and I knew better. And I got to a friend's of mine's house, and I was an absolute mess. And we had a state policeman lived in our town, and they called him to come over there. And damn him, he wanted to take me back home. I was 16 years old, and, and it was the last place I wanted to be. And we went up to my doorstep, and my dad was sitting there, drunk. And that policeman knocked on that door, and he would not come to the door, thank God. He wouldn't come to his door. And that night, that policeman gave me three options. He said, well, Steve, he says, you have three ways that I see you can go. He says, one, he says, you can stay here and live with your mom and dad until you, turn, until you graduate and go out on your own. And I said, God, I, I don't think I can do that, you know. He says, well, he said, you can file charges against your father for child abuse. And I said, no, you know, he works at the post office and everybody knows him. He's got a good reputation in town. I can't do that to that man. Just can't do that. And he says, well, it won't be long. Another month or so, you're going to be 17. If you can get your parents to sign for you to go into the service, that would be an opportunity. And boy, that light came on. I said, oh, yeah, I can do that. And I can be a man. I'd be an army of one. Yeah, be an army of one. Uh, I'll be on my own. I have a uniform, and I can go do what I want to do. And it was it was amazing. When I turned 17, I took these papers to my parents and, and asked, would you sign these? And it was like magic their signature was on there. Unbeknownst to me, I was a bigger burr under their saddle as they were under mine. They couldn't wait to get rid of me. 
I signed a contract with Uncle Sam for four years to go to Germany. And I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky, and then I went on to Fort Ord, California, and then they shipped me on over to Germany, and I had arrived. I was looking at all these German women drinking the German wine, just having a ball. Uh, but I'm a blackout drinker. See, I'd chase them German women, never catch them. <laughs> I'd black out. And they'd tote me back to the post, and I'd wake up the next morning with this hellacious hangover. My head was pounding, and, and I said, boy, I'm not going down there again. Well, about 4 o'clock that evening, they say, Steve, you want to Well, yeah, I want to go. <laughs> Don't leave me out. Yeah. So we'd go again, and I'm not a real cold-weather person, and it dawned on me after about a year of this that I just really didn't like Germany. I just, just don't like it. And I thought, you know, I need a warmer climate. Dummy me. You know, I didn't think of putting in to go to Hawaii. You know, that's... that's I signed up to go to Vietnam. Yeah, I said, uh, they sent me home, and I stayed home for 30 days and stayed drunk for 30 days. And, and they shipped me out to California, and I jumped on a plane there. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, we were flying over Tonsonet Air Base in Saigon. And we were in the air for 45 minutes, circling the airfield, because they had murdered it, and they were out there trying to fix it so we could land. Uh, and uh, we finally landed after 45 minutes. And I'll never forget when they opened that door. Uh, not only was it warm, uh, but this ungodly humidity came in, and, and this stench that you've never, never smelled before in your life came in through that door. And I remember stepping out onto that tarmac, and I looked over to my right, and there were rows and rows and rows of body bags. I had arrived again. I needed out of this reality real, real bad. I stayed two weeks in Saigon, and I stayed drunk two weeks in Saigon. And they sent me further up north into the Central Highlands. And I stayed there for a year, and, and I didn't see a lot of action, just a little sniper fire and stuff like that. But I, I, I was found a thing called marijuana then. Uh, Cambodian red, and they cured an opium on their little huts up there, and that was quite some stuff. Uh, it came to me after a year of, of learning how to smoke this stuff and how to stay drunk over there, even in the jungles, and, and said, would you like to do this again? And I said, well, dummy me. I said, yeah. <laughs> if you send me back to this same place, because this, is, this isn't bad here. Oh, no problem. So they sent me home for a month, and I stayed drunk for a month. You know, I, I do those months real well. Stayed drunk for a month. Sent me back to Vietnam, and the, Uncle Sam kept his word. They sent me right back to where they said they would send me for one month. Then they sent me a little further up north. This was during a, th a time they called the Tet Offensive of 1968. And I lost some real good friends over there, and, and I hurt some people, and I'm not real proud of that but I, I think I did what was supposed to be done as a patriotic duty. I didn't know the political implications of it at the time. I just know that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And there came a time where not having a God in my life and, and some things were happening that I just looked up and I said, well, I guess this is it. I'm never going to see my mom and dad, my brothers, my sisters, anybody else again. Well, God had different plans. He had plans that I didn't know about. I finally got on that plane to come home, and I landed in uh, in L.A., and they were having anti-war riots in L.A., and it wasn't a very nice picture. They sent me to a place called uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. 
And I'll never forget that at Fort Carson, I'd go down to Colorado Springs and, and I'd go bar hopping because that's what I did over in Germany. And uh, tried chasing some women, but that still wasn't working real well. Uh, I'd go into a bar and, you know, there'd be 30 or 40 TIs and four or five women. And, and I'm not real good on odds, but I didn't <laughs> like his odds real well. And I kept trying and same thing happened. And I went back one night to post and, and I met this uh, Chicano guy, this Spanish guy. And I said, you know. I said, Colorado Springs is not a real good place to party, is it? He says, oh, no. He says, we go down to Pueblo. It's about 35 miles south of here. He said, would you like to go? I said, well, sure. He said, well, good. We can use a good chauffeur. (laughs) I'm the only white guy in the bus chauffeuring around all these Spanish guys. But we drive down there, and we walked into this. It was kind of a bar and a dance hall thing. And I looked into that dance hall. It was about the size of this. And they had a Spanish band up there on stage playing live and everything. And all these women shaking their things around the dance floor. And there must have been 50, 60 women and maybe 20 guys. I said, I like these odds. This is <laughs> really this will work. I finally, I, I spotted my wife. Well, now she didn't know I spotted her, but I spotted her. I had an eye on her, you know. And uh, we ended up together, and I ended up spending uh, uh, the next 20 years uh, making her life absolutely miserable, having to live with a drunk like me. And I didn't envy her at all. I remember one day sitting at home and watching TV, and uh, they were having their anti-war riots again, and they were burning the flag, and, and they were burning their draft cards, and they were running off to Canada, and they were calling us baby killers. And I remember a thing happened... In AA, we talk about this empty spot here in our gut a lot. Well, I had that empty spot, but it was starting to get filled by, by watching what I was watching on TV. And I'll tell you what it was getting filled with. It was getting filled with hate and rage and anger, all the wrong things. And I was feeding that. I was feeding it the booze. And it just it was like a tumor in there. It was growing. And I kept feeding it, and it kept growing. And I had, unbeknownst to me, I had a thing called post-traumatic stress disorder. I, I would I would just go off the deep end in a heartbeat. You, you know, I, I may go along for a little while, kind of passive-aggressive, you know. And somebody would say something I didn't like, and I'd just stuff it down there. and say, oh, that's all right, you know, and go have a beer and uh, get drunk. Go somewhere else. Somebody would say something, oh, that's all right. And then... You know, I might even be sober, and somebody say something, and it, it would click, and it was like this volcano would go off. Every, all that ugly stuff down in there came out. didn't matter who at or who to or where I was at or what I was doing or anything. It just automatically came out, you know. And I was quite embarrassed about that. But, you know, a drink will take, the, take you out of that uh, the embarrassment, and it will take you out of reality, and it kept doing that, and finally came a time where she couldn't tolerate me anymore. She started packing up the kids and leaving and not telling me where she was going. And I'll never forget the first time she did that. And uh, I was at work at one of the few jobs I had. She said I had 50 jobs in 20 years. I don't imagine that's too far off. But uh, I went home that night and she wasn't there. And I looked around this junky old trailer that we were living in. And I remember thinking to myself, what is her problem? <laughs> the lady's got a problem. Yeah. Uh, she kept doing this. She'd, she'd stay gone five, six, seven, eight, ten days, and then she'd come back and couldn't tolerate me anymore, and she'd leave. She was the only one working this time, and this last time that she left. And uh, 
came up to me one day. She says, you know, since you're not working, uh, this may be a good time for you to go home and visit your mom and dad. Well, mom and dad had quit drinking and, and, and joined the Catholic Church. And, and uh, I don't think they really still didn't want much to do with me. But somehow she wrangled up enough money to get me a one-way bus ticket back to Indiana. I had, I had a, a fifty in my pocket, and she made me two tuna sandwiches. And I got on the bus and turned around to wave goodbye to her, and she wasn't there. Whew. Lady's still got a problem. Yeah. But she's getting rid of it. Yeah. I got home on that Greyhound bus, and I walked into our, our uh, kitchen there at the house, and the first word out of my mom's mouth is, you will not drink here. I said, okay, that's not a problem, Mom. About 20 minutes later, Mom left, and I got into her purse, and I stole $20. and went to the nearest liquor store, and I got two half pints of vodka and a quart of orange juice and went upstairs in their home and commenced getting wasted. And I did that for the next 45 days. In this very same place that they told me that I couldn't do it. I, I, I just didn't care. Just didn't care. After that length of time, my dad that I thought that I hated so much got tired of me. He bought me a one-way bus ticket. <laughs> I never got round-trip tickets. Back to Colorado. Uh, I... In the midst of all this, about 10 years prior to this, I had I got hooked on speed. So I'm a drunken speed freak. And, and uh, I climb on this bus. And my dad was kind at that time. I never knew him to be kind. He gave me a $100 bill to go along with that bus ticket. By the time I hit East St. Louis, I was drunken in a blackout and broke. I came to going down the home streets of my hometown, or main street of my hometown in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, I, I say I came to. Uh, I had to search out where my wife was. She was. She didn't have the money to even afford a place. She was living with my daughters in an apartment there, and I found their apartment. And I'll never forget, I knocked on that door, and when that door opened, it was like the door to a deep freeze opened. There was no, hi, dads, how are you? We're glad you're back. It's good to see you. None of that gooshy stuff. They just did, really did not want me to be there. And I walked in, and my wife and two of my daughters went to a thing called an Al-Anon meeting. My other daughter locked herself in the bedroom. I sat there on the sofa looking around the living room. I hadn't had a drink all day. I hadn't had a hit of speed all day. And I was starting to jones a little bit. And I was sitting there and I was casing my daughter's apartment. I was looking for something that I could steal from my own daughter so I could go get drunk. This is where alcohol takes us. That's where it takes us. I didn't care about them. I cared about me. I wanted to get drunk. I wanted to get stoned. I wanted to get out of reality. I didn't want to be there. This is where God came into my life. And I looked down on that on the table. They had a little coffee table there. And I looked down. There's one of those pamphlets we see around this program so much. And I picked it up. And it was an Al-Anon pamphlet. And I read the first paragraph. And I, and I threw it down on the table. And I thought to myself, what a bunch of crap. God intervened again, and I picked that pamphlet up again, and I read the whole thing. 
somehow I ended up with that 700-pound telephone in my hand. And I called the local Al-Anon club, or Alano club it was called. It was on the hotline number. And some little old lady answered. And I said, do you have any of those A&A meetings here? It's a town of 100,000 people. She said, yes, honey. She called me honey. <laughs> yes, honey, we have them down here every night at 8 o'clock. And I said, well, lady, I said, there's something you need to know. I said, I don't have a problem. <laughs> see, I've only been drinking 30 years. I didn't have a problem. I just want to come see what it's all about. She said, okay, come on down, honey. I had to go. I mean, you know, this little old lady calling me, honey, I got to see what she looks like. <laughs> I didn't have a car, didn't have any money, didn't have a job. Uh, called her uncle and got a ride down to the club. Uh, for some reason, AAs like to have their meetings in the basement of churches, and that's where this one was at. And I'll never forget uh, going down to the basement of that church. Uh, there are seven steps leading down to the basement of that church, and I know that because I slithered down those seven steps like a snake on his belly. Alcohol had beat me. I didn't know it at the time, but I was beaten. And I got down to the bottom of those steps, and there were people in there just kind of like you, not as good looking as you are. But they, they, they all had white eyeballs, and, and, and they were laughing and joking. I couldn't figure out what it was all about. They was having a good time, you know, and I looked around, and they're People hugging people, and there were men hugging men. I said, oh, I'm in the wrong place again. <laughs> you know, but uh, I'm here, I'm stuck, kind of, you know. So I went to where I knew I belonged. I went clear to the back of the room and sat down, and I looked up, and lo and behold, on the wall is a copy of the steps. And, and my eyes landed right on that third step where it, it talked about God for the first time. I said, man, I'm really in the wrong place. But i got to do something. I don't, I don't want to look like the outcast here. Like, you know, I'm different. God, I don't want to be different. So I started watching these people. And they were sitting at the table lying to each other. And, and they had those little white cups. And, and every once in a while, one of them would get up. And he'd go to the back. And he'd fill that cup up with coffee and go back and lie some more. I said, well, I can do this. Now, don't forget, I'm a speed freak. Not only that, I'm jonesing for a drink, so I'm kind of here. I went to the back of that room, and I filled that cup up all the way. And you didn't have to be Native American to, to trace me. From that coffee pot to where I was sitting, there was a trail. Because I, I was just shaking like that. And I got that cup, and I set that thing down, and I used both hands to drink that coffee. And they started the meeting, and they had a neat thing called a go-around at that meeting where we'd introduce everybody. <laughs> He'd say, hi, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. And this guy, he'd say, I'm Joe, and I'm hooked on bonnets. And I looked at him and said, what? Where am I at? And he got around to me. Now, here I said, I said, I'm Steve, and I'm nervous. God, that whole room went up in a roar of laughter. They knew what I was. They, they knew what I was. I couldn't begin to tell you what was said in that meeting. I have no idea what was said in that meeting. Let me share this with you. If you're new here, please, please listen. After that meeting, we stood up and we did the Our Father, and I shook everybody to death during that Our Father. And one old timer came up. Now, all old timers are ugly, so that's how you know. <laughs> one old timer come up to me. 
I wasn't talking about it. One old time he come up to me, and I, I kind of backed up. I thought he was going to try to hug me. <laughs> but he put his hand on my shoulder, and see, this is like, this is my space here. He said, Steve, if you don't do anything else for the rest of your life, he says, you keep coming back. Keep coming back. Damn, I took that man literally. I really did. I didn't have a job. Didn't have a car. The wife and I found a, a little efficiency apartment out on Skid Row, and we lived in, in a little one room efficiency between a bar and liquor store. And I remember she'd go off to work, and I'd pick up my big book. I'm a big book thumper. It's about the only thing I do well in my life. I'd pick that thing up, and I'd start walking towards that club. And I didn't know till a few years ago that it was three and a half miles down to that club. But I'd be sitting there when they opened the doors of that club in the morning. And I'd do an 8 o'clock meeting in the morning. And I'd go across the street. There was another church we met in another basement at 12 noon. And I did that meeting. And I'd go back to the club and I did a 4 o'clock meeting. And I hung around that club and I did an 8 o'clock meeting. And if somebody gave me a ride across town, I'd go do a candlelight meeting across town. I averaged four to five meetings a day for two years. I took that man literally. I really did. I don't suggest that anybody do that. I don't know that you can OD on AA, you know, but I did a heck of a lot of meetings and and they let me mop a lot of floors and they let me clean a lot of ashtrays and they let me make a lot of coffee and I stayed sober doing that. And I'm not above that today. I tried the other night. She wouldn't let me clean the tables the other night. I wanted to clean. I wanted to help bust those tables. I said, this is service work. This is what I need to be doing. I need to do this. I absolutely love AA today. I love it with a passion today. I really do. I believe AA absolutely saved my life. The thing that I have trouble with, I think still today, and I may have trouble with the rest of my life, is learning how to live life on life's terms. I am not real good at that at all. And it started just right after I got sober. I had just a couple months sober when my dad, the one that I thought I hated, passed away down in Florida. And I got the call, and they flew him up to Indiana, and, I, and we drove out to Indiana. And uh, by the grace of God in this program, I was able to be a pallbearer at his funeral. That's what AA gave me. It gave me that. I was able to drop that hatred that I thought that I had for that man. I was able to pray for him. I was able to ask for forgiveness and not worry about what he did to me, but what I did to him. I was able to do that. And I went back to Colorado and stayed in my home group. And, and, and I remember I was sitting. I had my own chair back in the back, of the back of that basement where I sat all the time. An old timer came in one day. He was ugly, too. He came in. And I looked at him. I said, I'm bored. Now, I'd been sober about two years. He said, well, no damn wonder. He says, every time I walk in here, you got your butt planted in that same seat. He says, get out of here. I thought he wanted me out of AA. I said, I'm not going. You can't make me. I'm going to stay sober. He says, no, get out of this club. You're stuck here. Go meet somebody. Go do something. Go go get involved in some more meetings and meet some new people. I was scared to death. I don't like to meet new people. I really don't believe that I do well around new people because I have to send my wife out and tell them, go tell them who I am before I go over there and talk to them. 
But I did that. I, I got out of there, and it was just a couple years later that my my mom passed away. And I dearly loved my mom. Even though she had a drinking problem, I really loved my mom. And we were able to go back and do her funeral. Only, only because of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was about a year later, uh, a younger daughter, my youngest daughter, I had three daughters. My youngest daughter uh, was involved in a relationship and, and, and had a baby, and the baby was uh, slow. And he had some uh, physical problems, and he would uh, he would go into seizures and stuff. And we had him at the Denver's Children's Hospital up in Denver. And we got him through the seizures, got him on medication through the seizures. But he was going to be slow, and we knew that, kind of like his grandpa. You know, and uh, we brought him home, and, and my daughter was setting up housekeeping, and she had her boyfriend there, the one that got her pregnant, and... I didn't think too much of him, but she didn't ask me what I thought of him. Uh, come time, my wife and I were going to celebrate our 25th anniversary, and I called back here to Indiana and was chatting with a brother of mine that, that had been in AA a while before me. And he said, Steve, why don't you and Louise come on back to Indiana? I got this big, you got this huge backyard where we were raised, and celebrate here. And I said, wow, that sounds like quite an idea. So he called up all the people that he knew in AA, and we had a three-day party in that backyard. It was great. I mean, there wasn't one joint smoked. There wasn't a beer drank. There was a lot of music and a lot of food. A lot of good times. We had just a great time. And uh, we were heading back to Colorado. And uh, I was getting a little older by then. And I, and I don't drive straight through like I used to when I was a speed freak. So we stopped in Topeka. And... Uh, we got our motel room in Topeka, and I told the wife, I said, I'm going to call and let the girls know we'll be in tomorrow because we're not going to drive straight through. And I called my youngest daughter first because I wanted to see how the baby was doing and uh, couldn't get a hold of her. Finally got a hold of one of her relatives, and he says, uh, you haven't heard, have you? And I said, heard what? And he said, well, Maria got to go back to work today. I said, great, that's good. He says, no. He says, when she went to work, that man decided he didn't want a slow baby. He murdered my little 10-week-old grandson. He broke his spine in three places, severed his spinal cord from his brain, and contused both his little eyes that were laying out on his cheeks. They got him to Denver, and it was, it was too late. And uh, I'll, never, I'll never forget, uh, I tell people when I do my leads that, uh, it's kind of amazing the way God works, uh, because one of the most devastating days in my life was also one of the most awe-inspiring days in my life. The devastating part was when I walked into that church and looked over, and there's that little blue casket with my grandson's body laying in. And I walked to the front row of that church, and I sat down where the family sits. And there was a tap on my shoulder. And it was one of you. And I got up and I got a hug. And I sat back down. There was another tap. And another and another. And I got up and I got my hugs. And they tell me there were people just like you clear out the back of that church in a city block and a half all the way down waiting to come in and be with us. Be with us during our time of sorrow. People just like you. That's amazing stuff. That's what this program's about. That's amazing stuff. And I don't say that to bring you down. I say that because 
if it hadn't been for AA, I'm sure that I would be dead today. That I, I, I just couldn't, couldn't tolerate something like that. And, and, and some other bad things happened along the way. I had a sister-in-law. I had 25 years in this beautiful program. She passed away. But good things happened. Her, her and I, were we got to go to uh, the International in San Diego in 95. Oh, what a great time. And, and we, uh, we met out at Jack Murphy Stadium. 80,000 of us. 80,000 of us. Alcoholics can't do the wave. <laughs> they were trying to do the wave, and my wife looked at me. She says, honey... Are you going to stand up? And I looked at her and said, when? <laughs> They're up over here. They're down over there. They're up over here, you know. But we were having a ball. There's an old man named Fritz. He's an old Indian guy. He's passed on since. He had hair down to here. Fritz was, Fritz was, I hated Fritz. He was one of them old timers. Had a hunk cut off the end of his nose. He's an old Indian boy. Talked with a rash because he'd had throat cancer. Kind of talk like that, you know. And I was thinking, how's that a way to talk? Yeah. Fritz, I think, would sit around and just wait for me to make a mistake. And it didn't take long. <laughs> and one day I was sitting in a meeting, and I said some things that I thought were pretty neat. I didn't ask Fritz, but I thought they were pretty neat. And just next to the meeting rooms, rooms kind of like this. We call them room one, room two. You know, we keep it simple over there. He says, I need to see you over in room one. I said, okay. He's going to compliment me on the good things I said in the meeting. (laughs) Prince never wore his teeth and always chewed skull. Well, he was kind enough to spit the skull out. But he got right in my space. He got right here. He said, you need to grow up or die. And turned around and walked out. <laughs> I went home. Now, I'm like a little three-year-old when I get angry. And I went home just stomping and raving at her. I said, you know what that old SOB told me? She said, no, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> he told me to grow up or die. She said, oh. Turned around and walked out of the room. <laughs> I'm having abandonment issues. I'm sitting there just three shades of red and steaming. I want to beat up the refrigerator, kick something, do anything. Now, she's a tiny lady. About an hour later, she got up the nerve. Her little head come around the corner and said, you think he might be right? Oh, Now you're taking sides with him. And the reason I bring this up, the old codger followed us to San Diego. I couldn't do anything right in San Diego. But I got him. I got him. We went on a half-day deep-sea fishing tour up there. And they'd give you these gunny sacks, and they'd hang them up with a number on it. When you catch a fish, you give it to the guy, you go put it in that sack for you. Well, we got back to camp, and old Fritz is sitting there looking at me. He says, you kept all them little ones, didn't you? I said, yeah, I kept a little. I kept anything I catch. I'm like, yeah. We set up the barbecue that night. Fritz kept the big fish. I kept the little fish. Big fish tasted terrible. I go, ah, gotcha. He was sitting there. He said, those little fish taste good, don't they? I said, that's why I kept them, Prince. I knew, you know, those fish were going to taste good. We have a good time. We had a, my wife and I travel around. We, I, I, I've been able to do two leads up in Canada. I've done leads all throughout Indiana and Ohio. And I say that 
because not because to have an ego or anything else. I say that because I love to be with you people. I love, anywhere I can I break out, I break out. It's like when I was drunk, break out in spots. We break out in spots and we go to conferences and we go all around and we get involved in, in service work and just have a, a ball with this thing. We have a, a real good time with it. Just this last year, I was able to come up here and read the promises. And that was a real godsend. Uh, because since then, in, in May of last year, I had, a, uh, I, was, I had throat cancer. And I was supposed to get a biopsy and I had a, a major heart attack. And I had to have a couple stents put in. Which put off the, the operating on the cancer. So it was spread. And it spread through here and down across my tongue. They thought they were going to have to cut my tongue out. And some of my home group members says, oh, there is a God. <laughs> but they gave me a radiation and chemo. And I was right in the, just towards the end of the radiation. I was going to speak here last year, but I couldn't because of that. But I was able to come up here a little bit weak and, and read the promises. And I felt so good just, just to be able to do that, you know. It's amazing. My whole perspective on, on, on life has changed. And, and I'm just packing everything that I can into my days now because uh, I need to, to enjoy life. And I enjoy life with you people doing the things that you people do and going where you go and and uh, staying sober and staying clean. Uh, I need to end with this, and, and I love to end uh, with, there are three words that I like to end my leads with. For the longest time as a drunk, I went to extra lengths to try to look or act macho. For some reason, there was something in, in me that says, I have to look mean, I have to look tough, I have to talk tough, I need to be macho. I think so nobody would take advantage of me, although I didn't have anything they could take advantage of. Uh, I, I, I felt that, that driving need. And I didn't lose that until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and found out it was okay just to be who I am. It was okay. I didn't, I could, the mask could come off. The facade could come down. I didn't have to, to act like anything anymore. I could just be me and it was all right. The three words that I close with are not macho. I wouldn't use them as a drunk. I use them, I try to every day, uh, sober. The first word is hope. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no hope. I couldn't look at you. When I talked, I stuttered. Uh, I didn't have any self-worth, any self-esteem. You people gave me that. And I come back around today and I see people coming in new. I see people come in that's gone back out and they got 30 days. And they're back here and they're doing their thing. You know, that's hope to me. I, and, I, and I love that word today, hope. The second word is sure not macho. God, it wouldn't go across my lips as a drunk ever. But today, every day. And it's the word God. It's the word God. God has been good to me. As a child, I, I had a very damning God. My mother raised me with a damning God. You know, she'd tell me, "You look at that girl. You're going to go to hell." You know, you cuss. God's going to strike you with a bolt of lightning. Indiana's not a good place to be afraid of lightning. <laughs> you know? I picture God as this huge being up there above the clouds somewhere, and this big book was open, and it was to my name, and he had a big red ink pen, and he checked this off. Yep, he looked at that girl. Check that. Oh, he stole a dollar. Boom, check that. 
You see, by the time I got to be a certain age, I had absolutely no use for God or morals. I threw all my morals out the window. They just drug me down. I couldn't be a good drunk and have morals too. So I had to throw those out the window. Alcoholics Anonymous gave that back to me. As a drunk, I was a taker. I would take anything I could get. I would lie, cheat, and steal to get what I could get. In Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a chance to give back. God gave me that chance to give, to give back. I have a very loving, kind, compassionate God in my life today. Humorous God in my life today. Uh, about ten years ago, I became an ordained minister. I know he's humorous. <laughs> to do that. But I thank him every, each and every day that I don't wake up dead. You know, that's uh, good stuff. The last word, very powerful word. Uh, I used to use it a lot as a drunk, but I never meant it. I never even knew what it meant. And it's the word love. God knows that's not macho. I remember when my daughters were going off to school, I'd whack them on the butt and say, I love you. I didn't know what love was. I didn't, I, it, it was a thing to say as a parent, tell your kid you love them. But in AA, all, all of that has changed. And I love my children today. I love my wife today. I love you people today. You know, I'm beginning to learn how to love myself and how to love my life today. I'm not that, uh, that crud anymore, that thing that, that, that slithered down those steps in the basement of that church 18 years ago. I'm not that today. I'm a child of God, and God don't make no junk. You know, I love life today. I love you people today. Yeah. We've come a long way, baby. Come a long way. Pauline, I've been wanting to try to say something nice about you all night. I just can't conjure you. She told me to ease away for her. She's our next speaker. She's one of them Allen nuns. Uh, she's a neat gal. Came all the way up here from Kentucky. And, and I'm sure we're going to enjoy her lead, too. Yeah. This, this has been fun. And I'll end with this. I love each and every one of you, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. (laughs) Thanks for having me.